Hello and welcome to the Pump Court Family Law Podcast. My name is Tara Lyons and today I'm really thrilled to be joined by Nick White, who's a specialist divorce accountant, for what is our eighth and final episode for this series. Nick qualified 30 years ago as a chartered accountant, working for a number of accountancy firms, until eventually he became a forensic accountant, working in-house at one of the UK's largest specialist family law firms. Nick has now started his own business, working directly with family solicitors and clients, and his work includes acting as a single joint expert on the issues of business valuations and tax issues, but also extends to advising on a party's financial disclosure, including a detailed forensic analysis thereof, providing second opinions where an SJE has already been instructed, and advising on settlement and tax implications thereof. And I can tell you that from my own experience, Nick's um, advice and insight into cases is absolutely uh, fantastic. Today, Nick and I are going to be considering business valuations in the context of financial remedies cases, which is going to be incredibly interesting. So, Nick, welcome. Hello. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you, Tara. Good morning. Good morning. Um, Nick, I'm just going to launch straight in because business valuations, obviously, as um, solicitors or uh, barristers, we're not trained accountants. And there can be a tendency when we're faced with um, a business being disclosed in someone's for me to launch straight into thinking that we must get uh, an SJE instructed. But, but what's your view about the sorts of cases in which you want to consider instructing an SJE to value a business? Well, I think the, the first thing to say is that you need to try and understand the business before you launch into just going straight down the route of having an SJE. I've found personally over many years that the production of an SJE report, whilst in a lot of cases, is wholly merited. It can, in some instances, prove a barrier to negotiation in the proceedings because you can end up quite easily with a report that one party very much likes mm. one report that the other party doesn't like at all and that then produces this this barrier to negotiation um the, a judge likely to rely on that valuation report but i've say also found over many years that it's very, very difficult, if not impossible sometimes, to get an expert to entertain there being a different opinion of value to what is expressed in, in the report. So what I, I tend to try and advise is to get myself or somebody like myself involved at an early stage to consider whether or not a valuation on an SJE basis is something that is necessary and, and that can quite often will come down to issues of, of scale or yeah. type of business but it, is it more beneficial to the parties in terms of reaching a, a settlement on a pragmatic basis to have some sort of idea of the value 
within or the parameters within which the value lies and then negotiate on that basis. And what kind of thing are you thinking about might inform the party, parties as to the parameters if you don't have the benefit of an SJE report? A business is particularly in divorce proceedings, the, the majority of businesses that you come across are of a certain size, the majority being family type businesses in nature rather than what I would say quoted PLC yes. in nature. So they lend themselves more to an understanding between the parties of what income the business has provided over what period of time. And there, I think there is a general feel that the parties have as to what, what the broad parameters of value, of value might be, whether the value using a particular multiple or a particular um, assessment of annual, annual earnings. I think yeah. if you have the right advice in place, it's should be relatively straightforward to come sort to some form of agreed consensus, um, particularly where the value of the business is not massive in terms of the overall scale of, of the asset pot. Where, where it is massive in terms of the overall asset pot, then there has to be more extensive thought process going on in how the business is going to be dealt with going forward because it's going to be very very difficult if not impossible to achieve a clean break with a business that has that percentage of value relative to the total yeah and you spoke about issues of scale so if actually you're representing a party and they have quite a different view of the value of the business to the other side uh, or you formed the view that actually it's not safe to kind of negotiate on the information that the other side is um, is giving you. What what sort of issues of scale are we looking at when we're thinking? Yes, we definitely want to press ahead with an SJE. I, are I we looking at capital the the capital, or are we looking at the income, or is it a mixture of both? Well, the, the, val the value is obviously the capital side of things rather than the income, because when, when looking at a business, you are looking at what is the commercial level of director's remuneration in terms of what would it cost to replace the existing um, directors uh, if, if an investor acquired that business. Um, but also... In, in terms of scale, the, say the bigger the bigger the numbers are in terms of not necessarily hundreds of thousands but millions, and the the difference between the parties, I think you can get a very good feel for things right. fairly early on in the case in in terms of where each party is sitting vis-a-vis -vis the overall value, and if through use of advisors, because people like me tend to be involved within cases fairly early doors in any mm. event. If you can get some sort of broad consensus that a value is going to be between two figures, then you can start negotiating around that. Where you have one party or the other party who has, shall we say, an unrealistic or uncommercial 
approach to the value, e.g. my business is worth nothing, even though there's one and a half million pounds on net assets on the balance sheet, then you you are struggling, I think, to bring the parties mm. together mm. in terms of seeking a settlement. So in that in that situation, um, or situations like it, you're going to need to go down the SJE route because one party or the other party is not adopting a pragmatic or reasonable approach to the overall negotiations. So you need to uh, obtain that lever to yeah. bring, bring them to the table, whether or not that's an SJE report or whether or not that's a, a judge or an FDR. Yeah. And you spoke about income stream because what I tend to find is that even in cases where a business is very obviously the income stream that has that is generated as a result of one party's sort of efforts and work and if he were to stop you know that the business would event would would flounder um i come across lots of those cases in which actually people are seeking a uh, an SJE report but would you agree that's not the sort of case in which an SJE report if it's purely an income stream is going to be worth it if it's if it's purely or demonstrably purely an income stream where the profits that are being made by a business are akin to if not less than the cost of replacing the main yeah. the main man's or main woman's labours, then yes. you very much have that income stream position and you'd be looking at a net asset basis of valuation, i.e. what's what's there on the balance sheet in terms of undrawn profits over the last several years. Yes. Um, and in that situation, I think both parties should be able to come to a, an agreement that it is um, an income stream. I mean, it particularly applies, I suppose, to the tradespeople or people who work for themselves where it's you don't have any real scale in the business and you there's nothing really there to sell on yes um, and I suppose another difficulty although this may be um l less um of the case now given um the restrictions on use of cash but historically you know, if one party is saying, well, this business is doing terribly well, but actually my partner takes it all in cash. I mean, th those sorts of businesses are very difficult for you to value as, as well, aren't they? They're, they're extremely difficult to value because you don't actually know what the subtext is in terms of yeah. how that business has been operated for a number of years. The the way that you get to that mm. is by doing a detailed comparison of lifestyle and the costs of funding it versus what the accounts say. Yeah. I've, and so questionnaire, questionnaire it, type it, focus. I think it's very much questionnaire and trying to yeah. build things up. Whereas if you if you go down the SJE route on a case like that, you have two parties through their legal representatives who won't agree on a letter of instruction because you have one party who wants the expert to do a detailed investigation and the other party who doesn't 
And what the expert would end up doing is valuing the business based upon the information provided to them, i.e. the annual accounts. And you'll come up with a valuation that actually is pretty meaningless. Yeah. And um, so... You have to un under understand the, the, the subtext. Yeah. And actually, that's why it's so important, isn't it? Taking a kind of as detailed instructions as possible from the party Indeed. to kind of give the context of all the documents that you're looking at, whether it be the accounts or information from the accountant. You actually need the, the, the narrative statement from your client and the other party as to what, how they say this business was run. Yeah, well, I think when, when I was working in-house, it was very much the first document that I wanted to see when I was asked right. to, to look at, say, a, a, a for me or a business value, whatever. What I wanted to see, first of all, was the initial attendance note. I wanted to see what the context of the the marital breakdown was, what the business is, what the, one, the, the instructing party had to say about how it was conducted, et cetera, et cetera. Because the, the, the spouse who's not involved in the business generally has a wealth of knowledge about what goes on, um, at least in the family home, if not within the business. Yeah. And they, they quite often will underestimate what they know or what, mm. what information they can impart that is extremely useful to somebody mm. like myself um, in preparing a, um, a financially focused questionnaire. Yeah. And so we've actually already touched on this, but I'm interested to hear a little bit more about the types of cases in which you might be acting for a party and you don't want to instruct an expert. So there are other, any other kind of sorts of situations we need to bear in mind. Well, the, the obvious time you don't want to instruct an expert is where your client is very much on the defensive and has yeah. some knowledge about their business that they do not want it being valued and they do not want to run the risk of the full truth as to value coming out mm, into the yeah. open. Um, in, that, in that case, you may find that the, that party puts an offer on the table which looks too good to turn down very, very early in the case. Um, yes. That itself, whilst it appears reasonable conduct, can actually hide. Yes hide the truth um, yeah. and then it comes down to what your the other party through their solicitors wants to do about that are they it comes down to the the parties involved the psychology of what's going on um, what the what the other spouse wants out of the case do they are they being pragmatic in terms of what they want as a settlement or are they want to go wanting to go the full nine yards and really make the other party suffer there's there's a as you know there's a vast myriad of agendas going on with parties and what they're prepared to settle for um but it's i find it's very much with with business people it's what's mine is mine um mm. I, I earn this um it's difficult to, to see them as matrimonial assets isn't it very difficult yeah and I mean, what about if we think about the kind of nature of a particular business that, that you might not want to get valued? Are there any are there any sorts of businesses that you think 
no, not worth it, or for your client, actually, it could skew things. Well, I come back to you know what I said earlier on. It's whether you want to be hamstrung with a with a valuation yeah. that one party or the other won't then move on. I think all businesses are capable of being valued, other than the obvious in terms of income stream. It's I find it sometimes a question of who or what type of expert you get to value it because yeah. say a a property-based company for example the value of that is in, inherent within the value of the properties yeah. so the, the the role of an accountant in valuing that business is to take the values of the properties substitute them into the balance sheet and work out the tax consequences yeah. um, of say of of extraction of funds or what if we sell property a what happens then how how do we get money out and what sort of um costs are we thinking about when we're thinking about instructing an sje because obviously that lends itself to the consideration of whether it's necessary or proportionate i think that is it's very much how long is a piece of string yeah the valuations of businesses can run anything from 1500 to 2000 through to tens of thousands of pounds um, when you're instructing say one of the big four accountancy practices to perform a valuation with all the the checks and balances that go on within within those firms but there are occasions when you you need that, both from point of view of, I, I for one say, wouldn't want to touch that size of a um, business and get it wrong by 10% and be hauled over the coals for it. Yes. Um, but you, the business is of such magnitude in terms of value that it really merits a thorough going over and that needs to be gone over by by shall we say, the, the bigger boys in the, in yeah. the profession. Yeah. Um, and if you in, in the assets in the case will also merit it in that case. We're talking, you know, likely talking tens of millions. Yeah. Yeah, it will be, it, it will be obvious in, in that yes. sort of case. But if, if you're in sort of what I would class a kind of slightly more modest um, values of businesses, sort of on the fence maybe um I mean one of the things I guess that you could do is come to someone like you to just cast your eyes over the information and give some advice as to whether or not an SJE is appropriate and if that is the case what sort of information would you be looking for or do you say that any instructing solicitor should really be looking for when they're thinking about valuation well, the, the obvious is, as a starting point, you want the last three years' sets of full accounts yes. for each business, for all group companies that are involved. Um, you need to under, <coughs> excuse me, you need to understand the how the remuneration is taken out. You need to really, I, I as an expert. I'm looking to understand that business. I need to know what makes it tick. I need to know who the main people are. I need to know who yeah. the main customers are. I need to know if there's 
been any significant changes to that business, either positive or negative, in the last 12 months, which would make yeah. certain sets of accounts somewhat redundant in terms of mm -hmm. looking going forward. Because if I'm looking at that business, I'm looking at it as, or through the eyes of an investor, I want to understand what I'm buying. And I am buying the right to receive the future profits of that business. So that is what I'm valuing by, by and large. Yeah. When, you, when you're looking at a business that's trading on a going concern, um, how do I staff that business so as an investor or owner operator? How do I transfer the expertise that exists there in there now? Um and so on and so forth is it's about understanding the business finances but yeah. also about understanding what makes that business tick and yes. what the consequences would be if you took the main director out of out of play or do you need him to stay for a couple of years for um, a handover yeah and so as much background as possible and yeah. I mean, would you flag up whether you thought a site visit would be appropriate or um, do, do you normally like a kind of invitation? How does that work? I think that that comes back to the the type of business, the size of the business, yeah. where it is. I mean, this, this day and age, by and large, everything is done on a desktop basis because the, the internet is an extremely useful tool, both in terms of looking at where businesses are and yes. in terms of looking at their websites, because yeah. a lot of the time the businesses can't help but brag about how good they are and how many vacancies <laughs> they have. Um, and you, you have a, a business owner saying the business is going down the pan, and yet there's yeah. copious job adverts on their, on their website yeah. and their um, they're expanding quite rapidly. Well, that's, you know, <laughs> not providing advice here to people to uh, stop advertising on their websites. Yes. I mean, actually, you've just touched on anything because obviously at the moment, if someone did want an excuse to argue that actually their business was suffering a downturn, um, the COVID pandemic is giving everyone uh, a, a pretty stellar excuse is it easy for you as a forensic accountant or an SJE to to get behind that and actually discern whether that is true or not given that we're still sort of in the midst of it it's relatively straightforward because it it, it comes through the the questions that you raise when yes. when in, instructed either expert or advisory you're coming to get to understand the business if if the owner is saying the business again is going down the pan then there'll be evidence of that yeah. both in terms of loss of key customers which is likely documented yes. if, for, if for instance the major customer who counted for 30 to 40 percent of the business went into liquidation six weeks ago that's a fairly obvious point and it's it's easily uh, ver verified yeah what is less easy to verify is those say customers who have become dormant during the covid period mm. but then when things start up again as they are now things start to pick up so you tend to look at what's gone on within the covid period has the business had a lot of furloughed staff has it laid staff off 
has it made staff redundant? Um, that is more of an indicator that the business doesn't expect to be running at the same volumes post-COVID as pre-COVID. So there are all sorts of fa- factors um, at play, but mm. a, num- a number of businesses have done extremely well out of COVID. Yes. Yeah, and that goes back to really understanding the nature and the background to the business. And Yes, but those, yeah. those, those businesses, even though they have done extremely well through COVID, it might be a mistake to value them based on the profits achieved during COVID because their profits may fall back to normal levels once yeah. we go back to normal. Um, in the same way that those businesses who've been underperforming in the last 12 months will pick up. I mean, is that a case for actually, I I know we're segueing slightly because I wanted to ask you about the letter of instruction next, but is that a case for, in a case where it is argued that um, uh, valuations have been impacted by COVID, is that a case for actually trying to build in some sort of adjournment to court proceedings so you've got more time for someone like you to actually see what the lay of the land is as we're coming out of the pandemic well there there shouldn't really be a need say to adjourn court proceedings um if if the case is proceeding in its normal way um there may be justification for doing so if you have the two parties who have views which are diametrically opposed where the husband is saying well my business has gone down the pan uh, but actually I haven't laid off any staff turnover and the VAT returns still look okay Um, you then you then call his bluff and say okay well let's delay the formies let's delay the the FDR um, because we need to see what's going on. And yes. P.S. We don't think you're telling the truth. Yes. Um, so every, I think as you, over many, many years, I don't think I've ever seen two cases that are, are identical. No, every, no, Every case has its own unique features and in the same yeah. way that every business has its own unique features and every personality involved in a case is different. Yeah. So moving on to the letter of instruction, because uh, sometimes this can actually cause a real tussle between um, the parties as to what exactly goes in your letter of instruction to your SJE. What's your view on what's needed in the letter of instruction? I've found that letter of instruction can be a very emotive document with solicitors that each side is desperate to include or not include certain things within it which I won't go as far as to say they're looking to steer the expert in a particular direction but by and large a letter of instruction is it covers fixed things it is to instruct, say, I'm talking about a, a forensic accountancy expert here. It is to yes. instruct the forensic accountant to value the business, to value the party's interests in that business, to establish the amount of tax that would be payable on a sale of that business, 
to assess whether or not there is any liquidity within the business that can be used to extract uh, to assist the settlement and to, to opine as to what is the reasonable maintainable income stream that can be derived from it and those are the five things which are key to the letter of instruction mm. not the fluff that goes around the edge other than factual backgrounds what are the businesses who are the shareholders the the factual items rather than the the woolly stuff that goes around well this happened to the business and so on and so forth the mm. expert the expert will make their own inquiries as i do on yes. receipt of an instruction i will send out a request for further information on lots of different things and that is when and how i get my information rather yes. than through the letter of instruction so I would expect that there have been many instances over the years where the actual cost of preparing the letter of instruction in terms of legal time has outweighed the cost of preparing the report. Yeah. So, so actually, just keep it, keep it simple, keep it keep clear, it and and trust that your SJE is going to ask for the correct information. Yes, and yeah. if if he, if he doesn't, then ask. <laughs> raise the questions of the expert once they've done the report in terms of yeah. well did you consider this if not why not and what would yeah. be the effects on the quantum in your report if this was the case rather than yeah. what you have assumed in the report but hopefully yeah. when when parties agree um or not on who to instruct they place some level of confidence in the expert to do a proper job otherwise yeah. why instructing that particular expert yeah. And so when we're thinking about the sorts of valuations that um, you might be asking the expert to uh, base his opinion on, what are the primary methods of valuing a business? Well, the, the two primary methods for the vast bulk of businesses that yeah. are seen within family, family law cases. And it's the expert's who decides what is the most appropriate basis. Um, I have seen letter of instructions saying, you are instructed to value this business on basis A. Well, no, thank you. Um, I'll decide what <laughs> basis I'll value the business on um, because it's what would it sell between willing willing by a willing vendor with full information, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, ordinarily, you would, you would look to value a trading business as a going concern and you would use an earnings basis right. valuation. That involves establishing in the first instance what is what are its maintainable profits. Yes. And that that is after adjusting for all the one-offs. I mean, at the moment, typically COVID grants and the effects of COVID to get to what is the underlying profit and allowing for reasonable management remuneration because the vast bulk of family companies the owner directors will pay themselves circa nine and a half thousand per annum as a salary and mm. the rest of it comes out of, of as dividends but when valuing the business you've got to allow for the commercial cost of management remuneration mm. because that is what a purchaser would be paying somebody to run the business for them so that's the that's the first thing. Yes. You then need to assess what you consider to be a reasonable multiple 
or number of years to apply to the maintainable earnings figure to get to what's in terms of enterprise value. Then you adjust for cash and debt, and that gives equity value. And what sort of um, what sort of multiples are you looking to apply, and how do they range? They range from the say sublime to the ridiculous. Um, it yeah. depends very much what business you're looking at, mm. what sector it's involved in, how large it is, how small it is. Okay whether or not it's saleable, you, you can have instances where you would apply, say, a multiple of one to instances where you're applying a multiple of 15, 20. Right. Uh, and depending yeah. very much on the business. And you have to look at that and take the like the advice of the various indice, market indices that are available mm. out there. Um, so it's very... It's very, it's very, very difficult to get an expert to move at all once they have decided on a multiple. Right. And if that multiple is being applied to, say, a figure of four, five, six hundred thousand, that yeah. can make a huge difference in a yeah. family law case, whether or not they're using a multiple of three or whether or not they should be using a multiple of six. Yes. Um, and they, me, will always hide behind in my experience over so many years of dealing with such and such um, that is my view of the multiple mm. that again comes back to whether or not you want to negotiate around a set of parameters rather than being tied with a valuation that you yeah. don't like yeah and then the other method of or principal method of valuation is, is that the assets basis yeah. where you you basically take the, the balance sheet of the business, restate the assets at their commercial value by which primarily you're looking at properties uh, or property-based yeah. companies and then recalculate what the balance sheet would look like if with, with all those values factored in and with tax adjusted for, for the... For instance, if a if a property was sold for two million pounds, but it had a balance sheet value of one million or a cost of one million, then there is corporation tax to be factored in there, as well okay. as the tax cost of extracting um, the money from the business. And there are other methods of valuation, such as discounted cash flow and dividend yield. Um, but how often do we come across those sorts of? extremely rarely um, to to such an extent that I couldn't tell you the the last one that I saw. Fine. So we're just thinking about those two principal or primary methods. Yeah. All right. And then, I mean, another thing that you're obviously asked to look at is um, the shareholdings that uh, a party might hold in a company. What kind of things do you need to be thinking about um, when you're looking at valuing those? Quite often there will be, for reasons of tax efficiency on distribution of income, there will be what I would term alphabet shares, A, B, C, D shares. There may or may not be different rights attaching to those shares, both in terms of voting um, in terms of rights on a sale of the company or, di- or dividend rights, 
It's for the directors to decide what dividends are paid. So you can decide, you know, the A shareholders can have a, a large dividend, the B shareholders have a smaller dividend, and so on and so forth. So when when valuing the company, you have to understand what those what each class of share entitles the owner to have, because all the power will be vested within one particular class of share in all probability. So Alphabet shares, they're ran equally, aren't they, except for um, dividends which may, in which they may differ in their, their entitlements. Most of the time you will find they do rank equally. Yeah. Um, but with the dividends being paid at different rates. But I have found on a number of occasions where you will find that, so I would say, the, the spouse's shares are non-voting. Yes. Um, or there may be a preference class of share that has a right to a fixed distribution on a winding up. So you, you need to then allocate the value of the business across the shareholdings according to um, what the entitlement is. But what I would point out is that where, where say, the spouse has non-voting shares, then that compromises the position from a capital gains tax point of view. Yeah. So, again, you need to understand what is being valued because then that follows through into the, the tax treatment. And what about ordinary and preferential shares? Preferential shares will ordinarily will attract a fixed income per annum and may or more likely may not have a, a right to distribution on a sale or winding up anything other than redemption of the original price. Yeah. The value and, of that in the ordinary shares. And if you're, let, let's say, I mean, it's, it's sexist to do this, but let's say that husband runs a company wife has a shareholding what's your advice if you're representing the wife as to what whether or not she should take any steps in regards to her shares or directorships prior to the conclusion of proceedings my upfront advice would be not to do so because that's by taking such a step removing yourself as a director stroke employee can have consequences in terms of capital gains tax so adding an, I mean, extra, adding an extra yeah. 10% on top and also with the wife remaining as a shareholder that that in a lot of cases is a very very useful mechanism to extract money from the company by yes. arranging for the company to buy back the wife's shares um, it, which extracts the cash from the company, usually at 10%. But I'll, again, I'll point out here that that has to be done with HMRC approval. Yes, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm going to ask you a little bit about liquidity in a moment, but um, what about if actually the company truly is going down the pan and wife is worried about uh, being held liable for uh, this disastrous uh, company what about in that situation would you tell her to to try and extract herself in that situation it may be advisable to do so um yeah. she may then be able to remove some elements of personal liability from the date that she removes herself i think it's it's relatively rare for companies such as that 
for the directors to be pursued for personal liability, but technically they can be. Yeah. Um, if, if a liquidator holds that the company has been badly badly managed, then they yeah. can prepare a report and proceedings may follow, or they can seek you know, recovery of recovery of monies from the directors in respect of corporate debts. Um, as I say, I think that is that happens extremely rarely, but it's not unknown. So just finally, let's just touch on liquidity. Um, because you're not looking in every single case to actually extract cash from the company itself, are you? Often no. you're looking at weighing this against other assets in the form E. Um, but what are the difficulties with extracting funds from a company? It's very, by and large, it's very difficult to extract cash from a, shall we say, a typically husband 100% owned company. Yes. In any form of tax efficient manner, um, dividend tax rates, once you get to higher rates, it's 33.5%, and then the top rate's 38.1%. So the cost of ex physically extracting cash is very difficult. Far better to have a company where the wife has shares and then the wife's shares can be bought out. There's other things, your know, extra pension contributions, so, so on and so forth. Or if the husband is a shareholder with others, you can look at a capital reduction programme, which... Is not is not ideal, um, but the the ramification of that is that where you have a business that is included in the schedule of assets, and capital gains tax is knocked off at ten percent, that ten percent knock off may be inappropriate if say half a million is going to be extracted, but that has to be extracted at thirty eight point one percent tax, then that should be allowed for within the schedule of assets. Yeah. Um, well. Nick, that, that has been amazingly helpful. Thank you so much. Um, I, I, know, I know from experience that actually um, when you're dealing with cases in which um, you want to find out a little bit more um, from an expert uh, as to the values or, or, or rights of certain shareholders, a party's interests in a company, or you, or just if you need someone to take a forensic look at replies to questionnaires, Nick is the man to go to. Um, but having heard you today, Nick, that that honestly has has really cleared some things in my mind uh, about how to approach business valuations, and I know our listeners are going to find that extremely helpful. So thank you so much for coming on. You're most welcome, and thank you very much for having me. Well, this is our final um, episode for this series. Um, please join us um, in uh, our next series, which we will aim uh, to start after a short break. As ever, Mark Ablett and I are very keen to hear your ideas for podcast topics. So do email us at our Pump Court Chambers website addresses, which can be found on the website. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.